0: Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary McCleskey.
0: Religious freedom is a fundamental right that almost all Americans would say belongs to everyone. And yet our culture wars have led us to a place where many Americans tend to defend rights only for those of their own group. Our guest today is Asma Yudin. Her recent book, The Politics of Vulnerability vulnerability explores issues surrounding political polarization, engagement between Muslims and evangelicals, and religious freedom. Asma, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Erin and Mary for having me.
0: So first of all, could you share some of the personal experiences that prompted you to write this book in the first place? Sure, and
2: and there's a lot of them. Um, it really depends on the sequencing. Uh, a huge part of that is the fact that for over a decade, I have worked on issues related to religious freedom, uh, first in, in, through litigation and international and domestic advocacy, and more recently through public engagements with audiences and through writing and research. And most, I mean, most recently prior to the, this book was my 2019 book which is titled When Islam is Not a Religion Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. And that book in many ways led to this and my litigation led to that book. So to understand the sequencing in that book, I essentially sort lay out the story of the people and the advocacy groups and uh, who are putting out this claim uh, that Islam is not a religion and that therefore Muslims don't have religious freedom. And unfortunately, like I'm, I mean, I lay this out in detail kind of exactly who's saying it and why they're saying it and so on, and we can get into that in a little bit. But many of those, those sorts of very blatant attacks on Muslims' rights are coming from the political right, unfortunately also coming from people who value religious freedom very much for their own faith community, uh, many of those people being conservative Christian. And so I wrote this book, um, and it's important to understand, again, sort of the connection between that and my litigation because in the course of all my religious freedom advocacy, I have worked not just for the rights of religious minorities, but I've also worked for the rights of religious majorities as are understood in our culture. And so, very pro- very prominent cases in um, what many people think of as our culture wars, such as the Hobby Lobby case um, and Catholic objections to the contraceptive mandate uh, under the Affordable Care Act, and so. Even though I'm writing this book and I'm couching it in this sort of this critique of conservative uh, attacks on Muslims religious rights. I'm couching it in this bigger conception of religious freedom that that is at the center of my career, which is really religious liberty for all. I'm not coming at it as sort of a special interest pleading for this particular minority group. It's really like, well, this is a bad idea, not just because it hurts these people, but also because it ultimately hurts the cause of religious liberty for all. And so this was my framing, um, but it still, you know, wasn't, I wasn't exactly sure how it would be received, as I think any author can attest to that that sense of anxiety when you write books. Um, And so I went on this book tour that was amazing because I was able to travel the entire country and I actually had a couple of events outside the country as well, and was time and again welcomed to various conservative and Christian spaces um, to talk about my book. And so... It was interesting to me because when I it, I wasn't just sort of enter you know allowed to sort of be in the space um, just sort of for argumentation, but all but actually for a very open and candid dialogue. And I was fascinated by what I was experiencing because um, I mean, on the one hand, I kind of understood because I wasn't coming at it again from a very sort of like you know, identity-based perspective. Like I, I was coming at it as like religious liberty for all, including the people who were sitting in front of me. Um, But it was still fascinating because over time and we, as we all know, our, our culture has become so polarized and it's increasingly becoming difficult to be able to critique others and actually have them welcome that critique. And so I was like just fascinated by this phenomenon that I was experiencing and with this new book. Um, the politics of vulnerability i sort of set out to probe like what that was like what what was going on the scenario where i was time and again sort of coming very and, and offering very candid criticisms but i was being
1: welcomed with an openness for dialogue asma you mentioned litigation um do you mind sharing about what you what you meant when you referenced that sure so i mean
0: i
2: In the course of my religious liberty career, I actually started out working on international religious liberty issues in um, the Middle East, North Africa region, Southeast Asia, and South Asia, places like Pakistan, Indonesia, and so on, where we were challenging or helping to train lawyers in those countries to challenge religious freedom restrictive laws. And then the US-based litigation ranged from everything from houses of worship, access to houses of worship for a variety of different religious groups uh, to access to religious diets in prison, um, the ability to wear religious garb. Uh, and also, as I mentioned earlier, so like the cases that are very much at the center of our modern culture wars around religious freedom, such as again, the various challenges from Catholic and non-Catholic entities uh, to the contraceptive mandate and Affordable Care Act um, that and then, um, you know, even after having sort of stepped out of like the center litigation, still being very much involved through amicus briefs and so on. In some of the cases that we're seeing now or more recently being um, decided by the Supreme Court, such as the Our Lady of Guadalupe case that involved the ministerial exception um, and the Fulton case that is going to be decided any day now.
0: One of the difficulties, I think, with with our polarized political discourse is that if, if calling for peacemaking, it's hard to know how well you'll be received sometimes, although in a way you're being vulnerable yourself by writing a book like this. So I just wanted to ask a little bit about if you could say, you know, who, who is your audience? Who are you writing for? Um, mm-hmm. Who are you hoping will, will get something out of this?
1: Sure. So
2: the book actually has a couple of subtitles. Uh, so it's the politics of vulnerability is a title, and then on top of it, it says today's threat to religion and religious freedom, and then more specifically, it's how to heal Muslim-Christian relations in a post-Christian America, which I realize is a little, um, you know, provocative. But you know, in terms of the Muslim-Christian piece of it, it's obviously I'm, I'm trying to reach out to um muslims and specifically conservative christians i mean in the book itself i i do um, you know zoom in on conservative white evangelicals for a number of reasons but i also explain that some of the dynamics that i'm that i'm talking about in the book are not limited to this particular group but actually apply to conservative christians more broadly and so within that ambit you get uh, for example conservative catholics um and so you know i mean so in terms of the subtitle like i just felt like i had to kind of add the very, the more specific piece there because it very much looks at the muslim christian tensions or like that divide as a microcosm for bigger issues related to polarization and so certainly uh, one of the target you know two of the target groups would be muslims and christians in the us specifically i think it's instructive for muslims and christians abroad as well but because it's very much rooted in the context of U.S. politics, and I'm trying to explain in the book something that I think wasn't really being touched on by anyone else, and it's really how political tribalism plays such a strong role in the way that American Muslims and conservative Christians understand each other, understand both themselves, but also understand each other. Um, And so I'm hoping that Muslims and Christians in the United States, particularly those who have strong views of the of the other faith group and are interested in learning more about what that divide is about and how better to, to build bridges uh, across the faith divide, those are certainly two of my main target audiences. But again, I mean, as I noted, and this is also the way I approach it is that it's a um, microcosm of this bigger issue around polarization in this country, uh, religious polarization, but also political polarization. And so I think I would uh, hope that Americans who are interested in just finding another way, who are interested in conflict resolution and who understand the importance of lowering perceptions of threat, right? We hear so much in President Biden on a number of occasions has said, that we have to come together and be united. And he keeps referring, he's using this phrase that we have to lower the temperature. So what does that mean exactly? I mean, that's something that I explore in the context, uh, again, of, you know, within these inter-religious divides. And again, the other subtitle is Today's Threat to Religion and Religious Freedom. So it's also about just people who are worried about that, like people who are worried about dynamics in this country that are weakening the state of both religious freedom, but also just the place of religion in our
0: country. As you say, you know, much of the book, it's focused uh, in terms of um, Christians, it's mostly focused on evangelical Christians. Uh, but I do think that it is important. I just want to note that I think it's important that Catholics pay attention to this discussion um, about evangelicalism and public life, partly because evangelicals, at least it seems to me, play such a big role in how Christians are perceived in public life by non-Christians. That if you if if you are talking about pro-life activists or religious freedom activists in the minds of a lot of people they're thinking evangelical and so I think it's important for Catholics to kind of be paying attention to these to these discussions um, and as you know in the book one of the things that I think is a great strength of it is that that um, evangelicals they're not a monolith like most groups they're not they're not a monolith um, and as someone who spent a lot of my time, a lot of my life in several different kinds of evangelical worlds or contexts, I, it's something I just really appreciated that you showed that some of these distinctions. One of the big misconceptions I think that, that I come across a lot, especially in, in a lot of media coverage of evangelicalism, is this idea that evangelical and Christian nationalists are just kind of interchangeable terms. That, that, and even the kind of the idea of Christian nationalism has kind of popped up uh, or become more popular in the in our discourse recently. Um, can you talk about this issue? Why? Why can you not just simply conflate evangelical and Christian nationalist?
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that parsing the differences is really important to any conversation about uh, bridge building and any sort of hope of finding a solution. There's a number of reasons for that. So. The one of the parts uh, in the earlier or earlier on in the book is titled which Christians question mark, right? If we're going to talk about bettering Muslim Christian relations, there has to be this this question of which Christians are we talking about? And we can get into the whether why and to what extent I actually attempted to parse which Muslim, but I think which Christian was really important. And then the chapter in that part is is titled, um, you know conservative white uh, conservative white evangelicals are not equal to, I literally use a not equal to sign, to a Christian nationalists. And I wanted to make that really clear, um, because exactly what you're saying, so much of the way people approach this, especially if they don't belong to the evangelical faith community, specifically white conservative evangelicals, they tend to kind of take it for granted that these two are interchangeable. And when in fact those those um groups are very much different and if we don't begin to understand the difference between them then really there it's there's little hope of actually beginning to chart a path forward and so what are some of the differences Um, i talk about that in in that chapter i talk about for example the role of religion for each of those for christian nationalists their their focus on religion is really kind of as a secondary matter to uh, more political goals so it's a question of goals as well whereas they're really kind of thinking about the about America and it's and it's Christian character as something more in terms of ex- exclusionary right like what are the different entities that need to be excluded from this conception of what America is and certainly we hear a lot about this sort of this debate about the, America's origins and whether or not it's a Christian nation and what exactly does it mean to be a Christian nation but really, these are people who just sort of understand it as like this is what we are, and everybody who is not that is not really American. And in some cases, with respect to, for example, American Muslims, they're not just un-American, but they're also anti-American. Whereas evangelical is considered a white evangelical is just sort of separate from this question of Christian nationalism. Tend to focus on religion as their primary goal, uh, primary above and above, you know, political, and it's really about. The ability to live out uh, in, in that faith freely uh, and openly in American society to be able to inform American society by their religious values. And certainly there's an interest there in American society kind of living up to those values, but it's not something that's instituted necessarily through policy and certainly not with an intent to exclude. And so those are some of the differences there. And I actually use empirical data that kind of a couple of researchers have used to essentially create a scale of more or less national Christian nationalism right so we tend to think of these sort of either you're a nationalist or you're not a nationalist but you could kind of just be somewhere in between sort of like be part of um you know accept some of those views but reject other views and I and I parse some of a lot of those sort of social psychological dynamics and overlay it with issues of group identity and so on in the book and show that it's a lot more complicated I mean I think if the reader can walk away with understanding that it's more complicated than simply all evangelicals or white evangelicals are Christian nationalists, then I think that's a
1: win. It sounds like what you're saying is, I mean, Christian nationalists is not necessarily, um, it's more like a, a, a movement or a way of thinking within Christian Christian denominations. It's not necessarily like evangelical. I mean, there's actually a, an, you know, you or Aaron can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's actually like Evangelical um, Churches USA, like it's actually a denomination, right? Or so, but Christian nationalists is more of a, a, almost a way of thinking about, you know, America was, is destined to be a Christian nation first and no other religion should be allowed. Is that what you're saying? Right. So it's helpful for me to think of both
2: so the distinction in terms of goals, right, So Christian nationalists are more focused on the political goal, framework fo- focus on like what America is as a political entity and as a society in terms of like we're going to create those boundaries. Uh, whereas evangelicalism again is a particular set of theological beliefs and many conservative white evangelicals are seeking to live out those beliefs. Um, one of the, the other distinctions that I explain in the book and again in consultation and sort of based on empirical data is this is a distinction between the posture that they take. So Christian nationalists tend to an offensive posture. It's really like, this is what we think is right and what America is, and we're going to actively sort of exclude through policy and other means, um, the groups and the ideas that don't fit that conception of what we think America is. Whereas ev- conservative white evangelicals are, specifically the ones who are caught up in the various religious liberty issues that we hear about are taking more of a defensive posture. It's really about they're trying to carve out a place in America where they're able to live out their faith beliefs openly and without coercion and government restrictions, undue government restrictions at their space in a space of a lot of diverse religious views and and beliefs and practices. They wanna make sure that they have that space to do that. And a lot of so a lot of these cases that we see going up to the Supreme Court absolutely fit that model. And again, it's not always conservative evangelicals, there's also other types of conservative Christians who take that type of defensive posture. But if you listen to the public discourse about those cases, and not to mention lots of other things related to evangelicals, it's really not presented that way. It's really presented as these people are trying to impose their way of life. It's a very, it's very much sort of like the language of um, coercion, and imposition, and offensive posture, which again, is something that should be that's accurate when it comes to Christian nationalists, but less but not accurate when it comes to this group.
0: Yeah, one of the other things with with the nat with various, kind, well, with Christian nationalism, is, is it seems to me that the, I mean, kind of what you're saying, I think, and what I've just observed myself is, is oftentimes, they're not really necessarily practicing christianity and even just in a basic way like aren't, aren't engaged in say like regular prayer or bible reading like in regular devotion or even necessarily going to church it's it seems like this is kind of a somewhat recent phenomenon in the united states you used to hear about this kind of stuff happening in europe where some people who want to um kind of reclaim the greatness of christendom but Don't even really believe in God it's but it's like they just like all the they see all the cultural stuff that came with the church as something that's necessary to sort of reclaim Europe or the greatness of Europe and so you kind of get that I think in a different way in the United States, but in this odd way where Christianity can be more of an a kind of identity that that's not really necessarily connected with even pious practices or or belief or, or, or real theological conviction. Uh, you know, one of the things though that um, I think is helpful about this book, you know, I take it to be a kind of exercise in peacemaking and, and you're calling others to, this is something that you've been involved in, a kind of peacemaking exercise and you're, you're asking other people to join you. Um, and part of that involves, trying to understand where others are coming from. You spend some time talking about trying to show, you know, why evangelicals and Christians might feel threatened. What are some of those reasons? Can you talk about that?
2: I think before you can even get to this idea of like, why are they feeling threatened? I think that parsing that we were talking about earlier between conservative white evangelicals and Christian nationalists is really important, again, for a number of reasons not just in terms of let's find a solution, right? So first you have to find the subset of people with whom bridge building is actually real and possible, but also to respond to sort of the public concern of, well, why should we even try to build bridges with these people, right? And so it's important to kind of separate out certain actors, violent versus nonviolent, for example, people who want to exclude versus people who would just want to create a space for themselves alongside other types of diverse beliefs. Um, so I think that's really important, um, particularly, I think, because during the Trump era, so much attention was paid to conservative white evangelicals. Again, I think the idea there was that because these people were the ones that were kind of thought of as the ones who put Trump in power, that they were really kind of probed throughout his presidency. Uh, and then a lot of that happened with respect to Muslims. Hey, who, who, who which are the religious groups that are most supportive of the travel ban, for example? And so there was lots of data there that was conflating all kinds of things And so what i really try to do in the book is to curate that data um, and to show what the important distinctions are now once you've kind of gotten to a point where you're saying okay these people are people that we can work with um then you have to start to understand that you know what is the reason and ultimately it's because they're people and um and once you begin to start seeing them as humans you have to start seeing the types of things that are driving their hostility and so some of those trends that I talk about in the book, I sort of lay out certain demographic changes, both in terms of um, race or sort of racial dynamics um, in this country, but also the fact that Protestants are now a minority in, in the US, um, I think best captured by a book that says End of White Christian America. And along with that, along with demographic changes, it's also the cultural changes. Uh, and most specifically, I would place the Burgerfell Supreme Court decision that declares sort of a same sex uh, sort of constitutional right to same sex marriage as the, the sort of one of the major, you know, reflections of significant cultural shifts that have made conservative Christians more broadly and conservative evangelicals specifically feel very much that the America that they once knew is not the America that we're living in right now.
0: So one of the interesting parts of the book was the way you talk about how Muslims can often be treated like a like a like something like a political football in our polarized debates. Uh, this is a kind of a phenomenon that I've noticed myself. And so I really appreciated your exploration of it. Can you talk about what's going on here? Maybe give us some examples of, of how this happens and, and say a little bit about why this is happening.
1: Sure. So
2: again, I mean, approaching this book based on what I was hearing from people, what I was seeing it was really kind of my attempt to probe like this phenomenon, right, of all the different ways that I saw Muslims and Christians interacting. And so on the one hand, I saw that there was a very open um, sort of welcome and response to my book, which again was very candid in its criticism. Um, but I but I also noticed that lots of other Muslims are not, not received in the same way. And once you have some trust and you start to hear what people are saying and thinking, a consistent theme that I saw, not just in my public engagement, but also in, for example, comments on different opinion editorials, was this idea that Muslims were somehow part of this bigger threat to de-Christianize America. Right. And then on a, on a base level, you can understand that because it could just be a reaction to like different non-Christian religions um, you know, growing in number, for example. But I, I just I knew there was something deeper to it, especially because of the way that I saw it sort of consistently conflated with concerns about liberals as well. And so while researching for this book, I came upon a, the concept of mega identities that was developed by the political scientist Liliana Mason. And the basic idea is that our political identities are now not just a question of our position on various social issues or policy issues. um, But now encompass just a tremendous number of different um, preferences so, for example, what we eat what we drive where we shop where we live, etc, are now can essentially be used to distinguish us as either liberals or conservatives right so. Whole Foods or Trader Joe's would be considered a liberal thing Pe- people who drive hybrids um, are l- going to be assumed to be liberal, you know people who live in the Northeast are going to be assumed to be liberal uh, and so on. And so, I mean there's actually been studies actually this isn't just assumptions but people who eat sushi and drink lattes are also you know by and large Democrat. What, what was interesting to me is, you know, I was able to use that and to explain these observations, um, which I was then able to probe with additional sort of empirical, you know, empirical studies and presenting additional evidence that American Muslims and specifically the champion of American Muslims' rights had become essentially a trait of liberal mega identity. Um, this was something that liberals do. Um, and I think whether they understand it or not, but it's often seen very, you know, sort of. Embrace in very symbolic ways to signal, um, for example, anti-Trumpism. And you see this in, for example, in the Women's March that happened right after uh, former President Trump's 2016 election, and in 2017 inauguration. And we saw that there was a number of major images, right, there was like a specific small number of images that were used on these various posters, and one of them, one of the big ones that represented the Women's March was a Muslim woman in a headscarf. Um, and one of the four organizers of the march was all, also a Muslim woman in a headscarf, and there's a there's a relation there, of course, because it was in repudiation of the travel ban, and the other sort of anti-Muslim measures that Trump had had proposed. But increasingly, so we sort of saw this idea that this is something the GOP in electing Trump was embracing this anti-Muslimness, and liberals in repudiating that were embracing Muslims and Muslims' rights. And this, a lot of this, of course, is pre-Trump as well and what i was interested in looking at is not just what that is but also how that informs how sort of like the fact that muslims are now a trait of a liberal mega identity informs the way the conservatives react to them and i'm not saying it's the only reason i totally get that there's questions of securitization and and racialization and so on this idea that muslims are internal external security threats and so on but i think most people think of when they think of trying to explain why American, any American and specifically a conservative Christian American would be afraid and anti-Muslim. But I certainly think that that political tribalism and the way that Muslims are conflated with the opposing political tribe in this case plays a pretty big role as well.
1: So I'm curious what kind of research you did, you know, what you gave, the example you gave of the, the women's march, that was a very like macro example, right? But in your research, like, did you find any micro examples, like at the, at the community church, at the, the small town level? Because sometimes I think that what can happen is like, if, if what you're saying is, you know, that Muslims being used as political footballs, right? That it, sometimes it's larger groups that are very organized at the national level taking advantage and doing this but maybe it's not necessarily seen at local smaller levels. Could you maybe share any thoughts on that? Sure,
2: I mean, there's a number of different evidences for that. One, just my sort of survey of different um, experts in the space of religious engagement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when asking this question of like how are um, American Muslims perceived by conservative Christians, it was, or specifically evangelicals, it was this idea that Muslims are seen as both religious and political outsiders. And the, again, this idea of like m- m- the Muslim presence and the, and the championing of Muslim rights, uh, essentially being a part and parcel of this de-christianization of America. And there's like there's this bunch sort of conspiratorial sort of element of this that I also explore in the book, where it's people who are very strategically pumping out these theories that are unfortunately are very well funded and therefore very influential that the left and Muslims are working together, uh, you know, Muslims among another a whole sort of range of my, minority groups are working together with the left to essentially, you know, tear down America as we understand it and reconstruct it in their own image. So there's lots of that. And so even from sort of like the level of demagoguery conspiracy, the way it sort of trickles down, it really becomes, begins to manifest in these, um, you know, more so- subtle ways. But at the core of it, again, is the idea that somehow Muslims can be lumped in with, um, with the left and what they're doing. Um, there's other sort of empirical evidence that I offer, for example, a BYU study on sort of breaking down groups according to their sort of political affiliations and their willingness to tolerate anti, sort of like hostile speech against specific religious minorities. And what was interesting, time and again, all these studies, for example, was that it wasn't just a question that there was a difference between Democrats and and Republicans in terms of which group they were happy or not happy with seeing castigated, but that among all my minority groups, Muslims in time and again were like the group that kind of stood out as like with the you know, receiving the strongest reaction. And so, for example, people who identified as Republican were most likely to support anti-Muslim speech. And Democrats were, that was the type of speech that they were sort of most worried about. Um, there's also studies, for example, where um University of Maryland kind of tracked over the course of multiple years um the sort of the rates of anti-muslim sentiment and found over the course of these certainly uh, over a couple of years that among Democrats, perceptions of Muslims had gotten better um and among Republicans had stayed the same. And what was really striking was that the second survey that was done in this in this series of surveys, actually tested this just like a few weeks after the Orlando um, shooting at at the gay club. Um, And so at a time when you would think it's even more likely to sort of affect perceptions of Muslims, you actually see this sort of increase in positive responses to Muslims. And so this, you know, this person from Brookings, the think tank who was um, involved in this work, you know, was commenting on it and he said, you know, essentially what you're seeing in this scenario is this idea that anti-Muslim is, you know, that sentiment anti-Muslim sentiment is com- is conflated with Trumpism essentially, and as a way of sort of showing your opposition to Trump, this was something that you're going to make sure that you don't reflect. And so, I mean, this and, and a number of other things I kind of look at in the book as just you know on the on the very local level and the state level. I mean, I talk about, for example, and this was actually something I stumbled upon while I was doing research for the first book when I was looking at these various laws that are proposed um, under sort of the bogeyman, you know, name of like anti-Sharia laws, but they're actually anti-religious arbitration laws. And I saw this commentary on MSNBC where the person who proposed this in Oklahoma was actually, um, you know, he kept the way he, in terms of defending it, he kept sort of explaining how he was concerned about liberal judges um, instituting Sharia and, but the focus seemed to be disproportionately on liberal judges, and so as opposed to some sort of Muslim threat in the state of Oklahoma. And I was just like, what exactly is he worried about? Is he worried about liberal judges, or is he worried about this thing that he thinks is, you know, an actual, I mean, does he think Sharia is a threat, and specifically in a place like Oklahoma, where Muslims constitute less than 1% of this, the population? Um, and it seemed like he was more preoccupied with the liberal part of it. And so that really kind of was like one of the initial seeds that, that sort of got me thinking about this.
0: One of the things you do is, you know, you do this exercise in in trying to show that and, and to understand where some Christians are coming from. But that doesn't mean that you can't that you just kind of let let anything slide. And you and you've mentioned, you know, that the, this idea of these different conspiracy theories and what, one idea out there of Islam and Marxism somehow being a lie or Marxist and, and Islamists somehow being aligned to try to destroy America. And, and, and you want to and you debunk a lot of these types of conspiracies or you talk about where they come from. One of the odd claims that's out there is this claim that that Muslims and you've alluded to it because it you talk about it being your first book, uh, that that Muslims don't deserve religious liberty because Islam is not a religion that's something, you know, it's 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 a kind of a strange, it just seems like a strange idea. What is behind this idea? Can you just say a little bit like, I, because I think it just seems so counterintuitive. Any, almost anybody would say, of course, Islam is a religion. Where is this idea coming from? And, and how is it getting any kind of traction?
2: Right, so in that book, I mean, I open with a story of this claim actually being, argued in the court of law and was specifically sort of used against the Islamic center of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, when that community there set out to build a mosque. And the argument in a nutshell was that, yes, there are these various religious land use uh, provisions that protect the building of houses of worship, uh, but they should not be extended to the Islamic center of Murfreesboro because Islam is not a religion. Uh, it is instead of dangerous political ideology, bent on taking over the united states and subverting all of our rights and so on and so forth um, basically in a nutshell if you give muslims freedom they're going to use it in in, you know, in really problematic ways which if you really think about it at the sort of like at that more generalized way of saying it um, i'm sure you'll see some some resonance there in terms of what people are saying about conservative christians and you know it was interesting to me because i actually worked on that case and so i heard it in 2010 in the course of that litigation, but it, I wasn't really alarmed with it at that point. I kind of thought of it as a sort of fringe argument that you know it's always going to be strange people saying strange things. But unfortunately, by the time I got to writing this book, uh, the first book, which was you know I wrote it in 2018, came out in 2019. Um, what I was seeing increasingly was that either the, those specific words or this idea that Islam is on a religion and that Muslims don't get religious freedom was becoming increasingly common and was showing up in different forms. And if you really start to think about it, you saw that it was really at the core of a series of different measures that were being put out there uh, to restrict Muslims' rights. And it could be anything from the very sort of explicit, you know, these so-called, again, the anti-Sharia laws, which I think, in many ways, even for the people who are proposing them, are more sort of symbolic. I mean, they they have very explicitly said that they're not actually worried about Sharia taking over, but they want to use them as a tool to generate sort of this hatred and fear of Muslims. And they're sort of like a useful way. On this idea of Sharia that most Americans have no idea what that actually is, um, but might have seen something really alarming on on television, and they conflate it with that. It's a great way to stir up all this fear and anxiety. So that's that. And then there's also just, you know, challenges to, for example, the ability to build religious cemeteries or religious houses of worship. And the fact that time and again, um, if a Muslim community sets out to do it, they're looking at years and years of of resistance, um, which makes it very costly. And also in the end, either leads you to give up on the project or make concessions that other religious groups don't have to make. And there's another, you know, a whole series of other such examples that I talk about in the book. And what I found, again, very interesting about it was that the people who are making this claim were just the same people who are very much rallying around religious freedom as a fundamental right, as something that was essential to their existence in this country. And so it wasn't that they don't understand religious liberty, it wasn't like it was people who we might classify as secular, who don't like religion and don't wanna give liberty to people who are religious, um, but it was people who, who claim to be religious. Um, and again, we can go back to that Christian nationalist versus conservative evangelical distinction there. Uh, But certainly they were claiming to be religious and wanted religious freedom for their own group, but certainly somehow found a way to kind of reconcile that with this idea that this one other group shouldn't get religious freedom. Um, And it seemed that they were sort of blind to this idea that I think any lawyer could tell them that if you're gonna start carving out these exceptions for one group, that's only just gonna come back to affect you and your own rights.
0: I want to go on to something that's kind of a a thing that comes both at the beginning of the book and at the end. You, You talk about this idea of of being willing to stand apart from one's political group. And you also dedicate the book to to the black sheep in a fitting in world. Why is it important for us to be willing to stand apart from our political groups? Which is to say, why is it important for us to to willingly take on that role, take on the role of the black sheep?
2: Sure. I mean, just to come to a little bit on an earlier point, um I think this idea of you know one thing I, I definitely made clear in in the first book, and I think uh, as needed in the second book, is this idea that religious liberty for all and being consistent about it and applying it robustly does not mean that in every case in which a religious person wants to engage, in a particular act that they should be permitted to do that. I mean, there's certainly a balancing act, and religious liberty is all about that, the law is all about that. Uh, in terms of under understanding in which specific, very narrow cases does the government have a compelling interest in stopping someone from engaging in something that they that they say their religion requires them to do. And so whether there's any sort of you know significant harm to people's physical or mental well-being, for example, like our safety or our security and so on. Um, those will all be cases in which, um, religious practices would probably not pass the, the, the very legal balance, but the balancing test. Um, and I think it's, un- it's important to understand that in terms of people saying, well, in this scenario, this, this, there should be an exception here and the government should step in is a very different phenomenon from a situation where someone's saying that this is not even a religion to begin with, or that this belief is not religious. You can accept the fact that it's religious, uh, but then, say, for other reasons, because you can't even get to the legal standard, the Legal Balancing Act, unless you acknowledge the fact that it is a religious belief. Um, so I think that's an important distinction to be made. And also, you know, I have a chapter in that book where I talk about how courts define religion and the different sort of cases related to, for example, the Church of Marijuana or the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. And it was like a little bit hard to get to the point of writing that because part of me was just like. This is so ridiculous, right? I actually have to spend time in this book trying to explain what, you know, that Islam fits the definition of religion.
1: Wait, there really um, is a Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster?
2: There, There is, but it's- There, it, there claims to be, or- I mean, it's pretty well organized, honestly. They've really and they've in a number of different cases.
1: Wow. Um, but they
2: don't claim to be fully religious. They, they, There is basically a satire on religious beliefs and religion. Um, but, you know, it's interesting the way I mean, it's actually not just a US phenomenon, but the Church of Flying Spaghetti Monster actually has, I think it's called like noodle mass or something um, in like various European countries and different European courts have come out differently on whether or not I should receive the protections of religious freedom. But for me, it was like, am I really spending time talking about this as a way of kind of getting people to understand that Islam is a religion? Like a part of that was kind of frustrating, but, um, you know, if anything, it's a fun read. And some people kind of have to walk through that process, right? Like, Or be walked through it, right? kind of like, how do we get to this point of un, you know, un, acknowledging that something is worthy of our religious liberty protections? And again, under the law, it's pretty broad, which is why you end up in a case where you're even having courts consider the Church of LSD, or the Church of Marijuana, or the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, is because our first inclination of our courts is to give tremendous deference to the individual believer, and say, well, okay, we're going to take you at your word, but l- now let's go through these various sort of inquiries and make sure what we're dealing with is something that was meant to be dealt with, um, you know, by our constitution. So, on this question of the, you know, you know, yes, I do dedicate the book to the black sheep in a fitting-in world, um, and it is something that I explain in the latter half of my book as uh, something that I identify as I, d- I identify as one of those black sheep. And it's in. I talk about then the portion of the book where I'm talking, you know, I'm like, well, okay, I just told you about all these really problematic trends with respect to polarization, but what are some ways out of that? And I think really just generating a greater mass of black sheep um, in our current fitting in world is really probably one of the primary, if not the only way of pulling us out of our tribal holes. Um, You know, we have so many different dynamics and so many rewards that are offered to us to help to sort of ensure that we can stick to our tribe and that reinforces that paradigm, but we have to be willing to see it for what it is and be more mindful about what these polarizing dynamics are. Um, And once we understand what's going on, then I think hopefully we can get to a point where we can be a little bit more intentional about the way we choose um, to engage with other people, people that we might normally conflate with the out group
0: your Your book is mostly about the divide between evangelicals and Muslims, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, it is about Christians and Muslims, but I would say it focuses on evangelicals. I wonder because most of our listeners, maybe all of our listeners are Catholic, if you might share something, share any of your thoughts about what role Catholics can play here. But I also I, I'm, I might tie it back to this to the previous question about being a, the black sheep in a fitting in world. Because I, I do think that, that playing the role of the black sheep or, or being willing to kind of to buck one's own um, group in some way um, can, can be very difficult. And so I, I, you know, I wanted to for somebody who hears this or reads your book and is inspired and says, yes, I want to take on that role. I want to be willing to kind of, you know, be willing to stand out sometimes in order to to kind of make peace with others but that but that requires some resilience that requires a level of fortitude and so and that typically requires habits and practices or practices that develop habits that that kind of enable us to continue to to be that way
2: on the one hand yes i do focus on conservative white evangelicals as a group that i zero in on and i think part of that is also again because if i'm looking at this muslim christian phenomenon as a microcosm or case study and the broader question of polarization. Then I think it was a, it was where the polling data was was pointing me to. Right, it was lots and lots about white evangelicals being the group that was most hostile to American Muslims. But I do broaden out the analysis and discussion throughout my book to conservative Christians generally, and I think that's in that in that sense sort of capture conservative Catholics. So that's important to point out. But I do think that Catholics probably regardless of, you know, how they identify politically are necessarily as by virtue of their theological beliefs, uh, much more diverse in terms of their political positions than groups like evangelicals that can be uh, more easily grouped into or categorized into a particulars or a political tribe. Um, and, and I look at in the book how even evangelicals are sort of a political football in that regard. But you know, just by virtue of the theology, I think there's there's positions that we understand in our society as being progressive, and other positions, again, based on Catholic theology, that we understand as being conservative. And so, I think just the fact that by virtue of of having sort of those diverse um, positions, which I refer to in the book as our sort of cross cutting, right, as political scientists say, in order to get past our current state of polarization, we have to be able to find something in common with the opposite group. Uh, that we find to be true and and right. And so I think Catholics are very well positioned in that regard, uh, again, by virtue of just where their their beliefs put them on various issues. I think the other thing that's interesting to me about Catholics that I talk about more in the first book is the fact that Catholics have experienced tremendous persecution, uh, unfortunately, at the hands of Protestants, you know, earlier on in, in US history. And I think that shared experience and just understanding like where, People are coming from, um, even if it's something that's more sort of rooted in historical experiences. And I think that, of course, Catholics are have plenty of their, you know, continuing struggles today. Um, But specifically, that sort of struggle vis a vis Protestants, um, I think is something that can be useful. And also the fact that Catholics have risen above that. And it's an interesting it's set of lessons to be sort of at the center of Catholic Muslim dialogue, for example, like what is that memory? What were those experiences and how, how, how do we move past it? It's something that you know I think could be at the center of some really productive coalition building
1: between these two groups.
2: And then with respect to you know, the ability to be black sheep and to have the fortitude and resilience to be able to step away from the pull of tribal loyalty, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is that, yeah, I'm talking about polarization, but I'm specifically talking about religious polarization, which I would hope would be different from other types of polarization because it involves religion. So you can have political scientists kind of talking about you know, possible solutions to other forms of or subsets of political polarization. But if you have religion and you're a true religious believer and you're coming at this from the perspective of what you think is, is God's will for this, this world and this country, then I think that there's some reflection there. There's necessarily beliefs as part of both religions, part of possibly all religions um, that we don't know. We're not, we're not infallible. So our fallibility should always help us to think more deeply about whether or not our positions are necessarily right or whether or not there's not, you know, there's more stories and and more information for us to, to, to know in order for us to um, fully arrive at what is, at what is true. And so, that and other aspects of our religion, I, I would hope, would give us the type of fortitude and resilience that we need uh, to stand up and be different from where society is pushing us today.
0: Well, Asma, speaking of resilience, you have been resilient on this on this podcast and having to put up with with um, bad reception and and a pretty bad thunderstorm rolling through. So I really I appreciate your ability to to be calm, to be calm in the middle of the storm and to, to, keep, to keep pressing forward. So thank you so much. I think it's been a good conversation. Um, I always enjoy hearing what you have to say. So thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Yes, well done.
0: We've been talking with Asma Yudin about her new book, The Politics of Vulnerability, How to Heal Muslim-Christian Relations in a Post-Christian America. I'm Aaron Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.